first half of that chapter. First Corinthians 15, we'll read verses 1 through 34. This is God's word. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. 
for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So far we read in God's word this morning. In light of that and other passages of Scripture, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 17. Continuing to exposit and explain the Apostles' Creed and that part of the Apostles' Creed that deals with God the Son. Question 45 asks, What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism has been tracing out for us the humiliation of the Son of God. And so far the trajectory has been downward. He emptied himself of his glory when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the very flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. He then suffered his whole life long and especially under Pontius Pilate and on the cross, after which he died and was buried. And the lowest of lows of his humiliation is reflected in that phrase, he descended into hell. Now, if we were to stop there, the story of the gospel would not have very much gospel or good news in it. Then it would be a story that only gets worse and worse before ending In the worst place of all, it would be a story of defeat. And there are many who have been, or who currently are, who say that they are Christians, and yet they stop there with the death and burial of Christ. He was a good teacher, they say. He said some worthwhile things. He lived by his convictions. But resurrection from the dead? I don't think so. That's not possible. Well, if that's true, if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then according to Paul, all of us who call ourselves Christians are a bunch of miserable dupes. And we've been deceived And we might as well go home today. For Christianity then has absolutely nothing to say to us. But the story does not end with the tomb. The trajectory is going to change beginning with this Lord's day. Jesus did not stay dead in the grave, but God raised him up. And God raised him up not only, but Jesus emerged out of the tomb victorious over death and hell. And he goes upward from there, only and ever upward, upward into the heights of heaven, upper into greater and greater glory. If you are a Christian and you believe what Christianity teaches and stands for, that is what you believe. And that conviction 
of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead entirely changes the way that you look at the world in which you live and your own life in that world and your future. Everything, beloved, everything hinges on this truth that God raised up Christ from the dead. That's what I call our attention to this morning. Believing that God raised up Christ. First, we will see that God raised him up in victory and what that means for us. Secondly, we will see that God raised him up as the first fruits of them that slept. And then finally, that God raised him up with the power of life, that is, with the power to give us new life as we live our lives here today. Believing that God raised up Christ first in victory, secondly, as the first fruits, finally, with the power of life. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is not the first resurrection story recorded in the Bible. There are a number of resurrection stories and some pretty striking examples of resurrection stories already in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Elijah coming to the house of the widow of Zarephath in the midst of the famine, and he performed a miracle there which saved that widow and her son from starvation under the famine. But a short while after performing that miracle, that widow's son became ill and died, much to the distress and confusion of this widow of Zarephath. But how did Elijah respond? Well, he stretched himself out upon that boy three times, and he prayed to the Lord these words, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And then according to 1 Kings 17, verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. That is, he was dead, and he came back to life through the intercession of Elijah. And there was Elisha the prophet, Elijah's successor, who raised a man from the dead even when he, Elisha, was already dead himself. Maybe you remember the story. Some Israelite soldiers were carrying the dead body of one of their comrades who had probably been killed in battle, and they were going to bury him, but they encountered a roving band of Moabite soldiers, and they hastily threw this body into the only sepulcher that was any, anywhere close by, and that was the sepulcher of Elisha, and we read in 2 Kings 13, verse 21, when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood upon his feet. And then there were the several resurrections done by Jesus himself, raising the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus. Jesus' resurrection is not the first resurrection recorded in the Bible. Jesus' resurrection is not even the first story of one who is raised with a new heavenly body. The widow's son and the man who touched Elisha's bones and Lazarus were all raised back to earthly bodies, you remember, which means that though they were raised from the dead, they had to die again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, there was something different about his resurrection. His, his body was changed. It was new. It was fit for another world. Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, that as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's 
the kind of body that Jesus was risen with, a heavenly body, so that he passed through the walls, the solid walls of his tomb, for example, on the morning of the resurrection. And he behaved in general in a way that was mysterious and otherworldly. But that sort of resurrection had happened before. Remember the story of Enoch. Enoch who walked with God and he was not. Or as Hebrews 11 verse 5 says, he was translated by God that he should not see death taken directly into heaven, body and soul. And then there was Moses who was buried by the hand of God. And there was Elijah who was carried up in a fiery chariot in a whirlwind, body and soul. And both Moses and Elijah appeared in heavenly bodies with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've heard it said before that the Israelites in the Old Testament didn't really know anything about heaven or about the resurrection. And that, that was a later development, a later idea, maybe a development that came through the influence of Greek philosophy or, or other concurrent ideas and ideologies, but that's, that's not true. Read the Old Testament. Read the Scriptures. You'll find that's not true. Resurrection and the hope of resurrection was part of the life of God's people from the very beginning. Resurrection was an aspect of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve already in the Garden of Eden when he said that the seed of the woman would be born one day who would crush the head of the serpent. What was that? Well, that was the promise to remove the sting of death, which is sin. That was a promise to reverse the effects of the fall and to undo the damage of the fall, which is the promise of resurrection and restoring back to life. Abraham, the patriarch, believed in the resurrection from the dead. That's why he was willing to raise the knife against his son Isaac. Because according to Hebrews 11 verse 19, he accounted that God was able to raise him up, his son Isaac, even from the dead. The believing child of God throughout all history, from Adam and Eve to the very end of time, believes in a God who is the God of the living not of the dead. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac. He's the God of David and Solomon, of Isaiah and Jeremiah. All living, all having passed from the valley of the shadow of death into that eternal city that has foundations. The resurrection of Christ is not the first resurrection story in the Bible. There's a long tradition a long hope and faith in the resurrection going back to the very beginning and instances of it happening. Nevertheless, there is a fundamental difference between those other resurrections and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those other resurrections took place, you might say, on borrowed capital. Death is the great debt collector, isn't it? Death is the great debt collector who demands that his wages be paid to him. And that great debt collector was demanding that his wages be paid in the instance of Moses and Elijah and Enoch 
and David and Solomon and all the Old Testament saints. And yet God allowed these saints, as it were, to take out a loan, a life loan from his own account, a loan which God personally guaranteed. God personally guaranteed that death would have his wages paid and paid in full on a future date, on a future occasion. He swore an oath. And because he could swear by no greater, he swore using his own name as the seal so that his people would understand that there was a solid foundation for their hope of resurrection life and their hope of that city that has foundations that they were looking for. But it was always based on borrowed capital, based on the promise of some future event that God was going to perform. But when God raised up Christ... There was no borrowed capital involved anymore. When God raised up Christ, he raised up Christ because Christ, by his crucifixion, suffering, death, and burial, had paid the wages of death in full. And he had paid them personally with his own earnings, as it were. And so God raised up Christ. God It's right to put it this way. God was under obligation, was under obligation to raise up Christ because death had no more claim on him. God raised up Christ because life, the life of heaven, the life of the glory which is to come, belonged to him by his right and by his merit. I hope I'm not pressing the financial analogy too far by using an example like this, but I I think it's helpful. The difference between Christ's resurrection and those other resurrections in the Old Testament is the difference between you walking into your house for the first time, happy that you have this new house that you can live in, but also thinking of all of the mortgage payments that you're going to be paying for a long time, That's those resurrections in the Old Testament. The resurrection of Christ is the difference between that and when you sit on the back porch with your spouse celebrating having written off that last check so that your house is now paid in full, is yours. But now take that admittedly earthly illustration and analogy and magnify that a thousand thousand times God's raising up Christ is God's personal stamp of approval on what Jesus said on the cross when he declared it is finished it is indeed finished the reign of death over the world and over the people of God is finished once and for all the payment has been made the proof is in the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes The proof is in the living Jesus. Now what this means for us, first of all, is that our righteous standing before God is demonstrably secured. Our righteous standing before God is demonstrably secured. The Lord's Day emphasizes this point about our righteousness with God. The question is, that is being asked in Lord's Day 17 is this. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? 
And the answer is, first, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. In other words, we're not living on borrowed capital anymore. We're not living with outstanding payments to that great debt collector known as death anymore. Death has been paid in full, and his power over us as the last enemy has been rendered null and void by the death of Christ, and his resurrection proves that. That this payment to death has been made in full is demonstrably proven in the raising up of Christ. And that's why Paul gives us this record at the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 of all of these witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. There were witnesses. He was seen alive. He was seen in this glorified new body that he had been given. He was seen by Cephas, that is, by Peter, verse 5. And then after Peter saw him, he, he was seen by the twelve. Not by Judas Iscariot anymore, but collectively they were known as the twelve. And then he was seen again by above 500 brethren at once. That happened up in Galilee. He was seen by James, his brother. He was seen by the apostles again. Multiple times he was seen by the apostles. He was seen by me, Paul, Paul says, as one born out of due time. He had already been ascended into heaven at that time. Nevertheless, it was the risen, glorified Jesus who addressed Paul on the road to Damascus, saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Paul bore witness to his glory. Paul bore witness to the voice that spoke to him, the voice of the living Christ that completely changed his life around. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the, the, Lord, uh, to persecute the church, but the Lord took hold of him and changed him around. There are witnesses. Are all of these witnesses liars? Are they all insane? Are they all deluded? Are they all hundreds and hundreds of them involved in some massive conspiracy to promote what is in the end a lie or make-believe? No. The witnesses saw what they saw and they wrote it down conspicuously and God added his stamp of approval on what they wrote down by using the witness of the apostles to grow his church, to transform lives, to give hope unto many, even to change the world. And for the believer, that witness of the New Testament church, that Christ is risen, serves as demonstrable proof of this crucial reality that I am righteous with God and an heir of eternal life, that my standing with God does not rest on fancy, does not rest on my wishes, does not rest on the ideas or philosophies of men, but rests rather on an act of God on a historical event recorded in the inspired scriptures that I can look back upon with confidence. This happened. 
Redemption is secured for me, the believer says. And how do I know? Because I've borne witness to the empty tomb and the God who raised up Christ from the dead. What that means for us furthermore is that our future entrance into the glories of heaven is not based on borrowed capital. Oh, beloved, there was joy in heaven when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into the midst of the glorified saints, into the midst of Elijah and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and David and Solomon and all the others. There was joy in heaven when they saw the risen, glorified, bodily form of Jesus the Messiah because they knew what this meant. The debt was paid. Their standing with God in the glories of heaven was no longer based purely on a promise as great and as solid as that promise was coming from the mouth of God. But their standing now in glory was based on the Lamb who was slain but was risen again and who was standing before them very much visibly alive. And that's how we must look at it also as we anticipate our own entrance into heaven one day, beloved. And as we think on the entrance into heaven of our loved ones who sleep in Jesus or as we think of the final resurrection of our bodies on the last day, we're going to heaven not on a line of credit that eventually we must pay back. We're going to be raised from the dead not in defiance of outstanding debts that may come back to haunt us. Now our future is secured in the payment once made by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and the proof that he made the payment is the resurrection of his body. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ must all be made alive. For he has overcome death that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death. But every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. The first fruits. That refers to an important festival that took place in the Old Testament around the harvest time. Fruits, children, does not simply refer to bananas and apples and oranges. The fruits that God's people were familiar with was the grain of barley and wheat and other crops that they gathered in in the harvest time, or it was the grapes that they gathered from their vines or the olives that they plucked from the olive trees. This was the harvest the people of God lived off of and from which they fed their families, the fruits, the fruit of the earth. The first fruits, therefore, is the first part of that harvest. The first time the scythe goes into the barley field and cuts down the barley, which is then threshed on the threshing floor, and the grain, the heavy grain, is gathered the first fruits that's to be taken to the temple and presented before God and it's to be given to God 
for his service and for the upkeep of the temple ministry. What these first fruits stood for, therefore, were two things. On the one hand, God's people are to give the first and the best part of the harvest to God as an act of worship. We're not going to keep the best for ourselves. We're going to give the first, the best part, to God. On the other hand, this was a way of saying that really the entire harvest that we will be gathering in belongs to God. And that's why we should give the first and the best part to Him because He's the only reason we have a harvest in the first place. The reason we have a harvest in the first place is because God is the one who made the sun to shine and God is the one who made the rain to fall from heaven and God is the one who gave us the soil in which to plant the seeds that gave us the crops and the fruits that we are now using for our own life and service. It all belongs to God and by giving the first fruits to God we, we recognize that. That was the first fruits. But what does any of that have to do with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? And why does Paul bring up that idea of the first fruits in the portion of Scripture that we read? There in verse 23, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits after they that are Christ at his coming. Well, Paul says that in his resurrection, Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Now, his point there is not about sequence, as in this happens first, and then some time passes, and then these other ones happen. As we already saw earlier in the sermon, there were saints who were risen from the dead already in the Old Testament. There are the many saints who have been risen in their souls. That's a resurrection from the dead. There were also a few who were risen in glorified heavenly bodies, such as Enoch and Elijah and Moses. His point isn't strictly speaking about temporal sequence when he talks about Christ being the first fruits of them that slept. His point, rather, is that the raising of Christ represents the primary and the best part of the harvest. The resurrection of Christ is primary, and is primary in the sense that Christ's resurrection is the essential foundation upon which all other resurrections rest, whether those resurrections took place before in the era of the Old Testament, or whether those resurrections take place later at the end of time. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation upon which all those other resurrections rest. The resurrection of Christ is primary in the sense also that there is no resurrection more pleasing and more glorifying to God than the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the first and the best part of the harvest. And it's primary in the sense that Christ's resurrection therefore puts Him in a position of service to the glory of God and to the glory of the kingdom of God. We read of that in verse 27. God hath put all things under his feet, under the feet of the risen and glorified Christ. For when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which to, did put all things under him. In other words, God is not under Christ's dominion, but all things 
in heaven and in earth are put under the feet of the risen and glorified Christ. Why? So that the risen and glorified Christ can act as the servant and representative of God for his glory and the cause of his kingdom. And the result of all of his labors, according to verse 28, is that God shall be all in all. This is the first and the best part of the harvest. And besides that, Paul's point in that illustration of the first fruits is that the raising of Christ necessarily includes the raising of many more as well. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Christ is the first fruits of Abraham and Isaac and of all the Old Testament saints who will be raised in glorious bodies like that of Christ. Christ is the first fruits of all of the saints who die in the hope of that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Christ's resurrection is God's stamp of ownership on the full harvest, on all of the souls who die in faith, who are his elect. Christ's resurrection, furthermore, is the guarantee and promise what the Lord's Day calls the pledge, the pledge that God will also raise up us one day with all the saints. What this means for us then is that our future, the future that we look forward to, the future of resurrection and of the kingdom of heaven, that future has broken into the present through the resurrection of Christ. When you look at Jesus in his resurrection, what you are seeing is the model of exactly what's going to happen in the general resurrection of the dead on the last day. I would say that the resurrection of Jesus is the prototype of the resurrections that are coming, but that word might leave the wrong impression because a prototype is a piece of technology that is designed to give you an idea of this technology that is in development, but a prototype is usually, as the first example of that technology, something that is in need of refinement and isn't perfect yet. While the raising of Jesus gives us an idea of our own future resurrection, in that sense it is the prototype, the model but the resurrection of Jesus also represents the resurrection at its most glorious, at its most perfect. The risen Christ is the King of glory breaking into the web of darkness and shadow of this present evil age. It is the risen Lord come to stand before God and his people as the epitome of what life is and what life ought to be. Which is why we receive this by faith, beloved, and we praise and we worship and we glorify this risen Jesus Christ. Don't be shy about doing that. Don't be shy about worshiping the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we are shy about that. We don't want to praise and worship Christ because we think that if we praise and worship Christ, we're doing that to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. Well, that's not really true. You're following the example of the apostles when you worship the Christ. 
They're following the example of Thomas, the apostle, when you confess before the risen and glorified Christ that he is my Lord and my God. Worship him, praise him, glorify him as the victor over death and hell, as the Lord of glory. Come into our life and into our experience as the first fruits, as the beginning of that new heavens and that new earth. What all of this should also tell us, beloved, is that there is so much bound up in this event of the resurrection. He's the first fruits, which means there is so much to follow. I don't know, beloved, if we give the resurrection attention enough. I don't know if we give it credit enough. I think sometimes we treat it as just one doctrine among other doctrines, perhaps, an event. It's an event that happened, yes, a very important event, so important that we give it its own day. We have a holiday called Easter, just like we have a holiday called Christmas. But no, beloved, it's not just one doctrine among other doctrines. It's not just one factoid that we need to memorize and understand in the whole system of theology that we have. It's not just a reason to have ham and potatoes on Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Christ is the hinge on which the entirety of the Christian faith turns. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the breaking in of the future kingdom of God with the glorious Lord triumphant over death and hell. We exaggerate not at all when we say that the resurrection of Christ is everything. The whole world is going to be changed one day. It's going to be made new. This old world is going to die. It's going to be reduced to ashes before God brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And that new heavens and that new earth will be a kingdom wherein righteousness dwells. It will be a kingdom where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the wolf and the sheep are friends. It will be a kingdom where the people of God dwell together without suspicion, without chips on anyone's shoulders, without any sin. It will be a kingdom where the tabernacle of God is with men, where they dwell with him, and where they are his people and he is their God. And beloved, all of that future, that heavenly existence that we hope for, will be pulled into being, as it were, riding on the coattails of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the first fruits of them that slept, which is to say, his resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. Make no mistake, to deny that God raised up Christ is to deny Christianity with everything that it hopes and everything that it claims. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to call God a liar. It is to deny him his glory. It is to deny him his honor by denying him the first fruits that are his. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to be without hope in this life and in the life that is to come. Which is why the Word of God calls us to repent of any doubt or any unbelief that we may be harboring concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead.
And the word of God to us is a call to believe that God raised up the Christ and raised him up as the first fruits of them that slept. And when, beloved, by the grace of God, we believe that, we will find that the resurrection of Christ speaks not only to our future, but it speaks to our present existence. Since God raised up Christ with the power of new life, That's what the Lord's Day says. By his resurrection he has overcome death that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. And then secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. It's talking about the life that we live today. The Christian life. It's talking about regeneration. That's what regeneration is, beloved. It's a resurrection from the dead. You hath he quickened, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Quickened, that is, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before you were so dead that you would not have recognized the risen Jesus even if he was standing right in front of you. Before you were so dead that you would have participated with the Pharisees in trying to cover this all up before you were so dead that like those Roman soldiers who had stood watch over the tomb, you would have taken the money, the bribes, and you would have, been told, and you would have told a false story in order to make a little profit. You were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. But the Lord Jesus saw you in your spiritual blindness and your spiritual death. And seeing you, he knew you and he loved you. And so he sent his spirit to raise you up to a new life. And to give you a true faith that you might recognize him for who and what he is. That you might recognize his glory and his goodness. And to give you the assurance that God is your God and that you are his people to give you the beginning, a small beginning perhaps, but a real beginning of a new life of good works in the service of God and your neighbor. That whole life of the Christian, the life that we live by the faith of the Son of God, is all tied to the resurrection. Beloved, if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. You are still in your sins. You're still accountable to pay for those sins. And you're still under the domination and power of sin. And that's because the resurrection of Jesus is the power of the Christian faith and life. There is no Christian faith in life if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are no good works if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But he is risen. Those witnesses saw him. But more importantly, God tells us through his word and by his spirit, he is risen. And we believe that. You believe that, don't you, beloved? This is how you show it. This is how you show that you believe that God has raised up the Christ. When you embrace the knowledge of God for what it is, 
then you revel in it, and you seek it, and you love it. It's the application Paul himself makes in this chapter, verse 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's not talking about people out there in the world when he says some have not the knowledge of God. He's talking to the church, the Corinthian church. Some have not this knowledge of God. They're denying the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And denying that, they're denying all the knowledge of God. They know nothing. Wake up. Embrace the truth for what it is. Revel in it. Love it. Live every day in its power. You show that you believe that God raised up the Christ when you shun and reject the lies of this world. That's verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It's talking about evil communications that come from the world that were being believed by some in the church. Evil communications that scoff at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that deny that such a thing is possible. And when you are taking in those evil communications every day. Taking them in, perhaps, through your television. Through the things that you're reading online. And when you're taking that in, not only through your eyes and ears, but into your soul and being influenced and affected by it. Don't be surprised when it affects the whole way that you look at life. Don't be surprised when it robs you of the hope of life everlasting. Don't be surprised when it leads you to embrace the philosophies of this world which are bound to this life. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If you believe that God raised up Christ, you will reject such philosophies. And your life will show it. Evil communications corrupt good manners. The truth, the knowledge of God that feeds into a life of righteousness, a life of godliness. If you believe that God raised up Christ from the dead, you'll show it this way too. When you're willing to stand up for this truth at risk to yourself. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour, Paul asks? Why am I, as an apostle and a missionary, going to travel from city to city, get stoned, get beaten up, be in shipwrecks, be in all kinds of perils? Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour if there is no resurrection from the dead? Then we have no message. The resurrection of Jesus his conviction of the truth of it is what enabled Paul to lay down his life for the cause of the kingdom of heaven. There was a power working in him, a power that was not natural, a power that was not of this world, a power that came from heaven, from the risen Lord himself. 
And we're going to need that, beloved. We're going to need that power in days to come. We're going to need that power of new life when the world becomes a less and less safe place for Christians to live and operate and to raise their families and to worship their God. We're going to need that power of resurrection life that comes from Jesus when going to church on Sunday becomes a matter of literally putting ourselves and our families in jeopardy. Some of God's people face that very thing today in other parts of the world. They jeopardize their safety simply by doing what we're doing this morning. How? Why? Because they believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Death has no power over them. There is no threat to their safety and security that can move them because their life is bound up in the life of Christ in heaven. What will enable us to face that when it comes to, uh, comes to, to our doorstep? What will enable us to persevere when we are the ones cast into prison? It is the firm conviction that God raised up Christ, that the kingdom of heaven has broken into this present age, and that that is the kingdom that will exist forever and ever and ever. You believe that, beloved? Believe it. Live your life embracing that truth and walk by your faith that God raised up Christ from the dead. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the truth. And we pray for the Spirit to work conviction deep within our hearts that we may live as those who have met and seen and known the Lord by faith, that we may live as those whose lives are bound up in Jesus Christ, who at this very moment is alive, risen and glorified at thy right hand. And let that truth, O Father, that we embrace by a living faith be the power to transform our lives so that we live for what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, that we're ready to lay down our very lives if we are called to, for the sake of the kingdom, knowing that we can lay down our lives, for our life can never be taken from us when it is secured through the, through the risen Lord. Bless us, o, o Father, and send us away from thy house with thy blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.